This episode of the Bendy Bodies podcast is brought to you by Bowerfine Premium Braces and Supports. Bowerfine promotes mobility and activity through pain relief and improved joint control. Hello, and welcome to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. This is Jennifer Milner here with co-host Dr. Linda Bluestein. Hello, everyone. Before we introduce today's guests, we'd first like to remind you about how you can help us help you. First, subscribe to the Bendy Bodies podcast and leave us a review. This is helpful for raising awareness about hypermobility and associated disorders. Second, share the Bendy Bodies podcast with your friends, family, and providers. We really appreciate you helping us grow our audience in order to make a meaningful difference. This podcast is for you. Our guest today is Dr. Jessica Eccles, Senior Clinical Academic Psychiatrist at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK and Specialist in Brain-Body Neuroscience. She led the first neuroimaging study of hypermobility, and her work has focused on neuropsychiatric manifestations of connective tissue disorders. Her work on the relationship between hypermobility and anxiety has led to the first non-drug treatment trial of a targeted therapy for anxiety and hypermobility. She has published groundbreaking journal articles on the relationship between hypermobility, autonomic dysfunction, and altered interoception, as well as between pain, fatigue, brain fog, and neurodevelopmental conditions. Dr. Eccles, hello and welcome to Bendy Bodies. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. We are so thrilled to have you here and we cannot wait to dive in. Before we get started, um, we might be using vocabulary today that is unfamiliar to some listeners, so we would love for you to go through a few terms. Dr. Eccles, can you explain the differences between neurodiversity, neurodivergence, and neurotypical? It's a really, um, it's a really good question, Jennifer, and I think um, a lot of people can get a little bit confused in in this area. Essentially, neurodiversity is a way of describing a group of people, and within any group, there are going to be variations in the way that people think and feel, and the way that their um, the way that their brains are. When one person is neurodivergent, that's the property of an individual. And typically, when we talk of neurodivergence, we think about brain differences, things like being an autistic person, having ADHD, um, having dyslexia, uh, which is difficulties with words, dyscalculia, which is difficulties with numbers, and dyspraxia, which is um, a difficulty with uh, where you are, sense of space, uh, which uh, is to do with proprioception. And I think uh, an important point is that um, these things are not necessarily disabilities or disorders. They are differences and they're a source of uh, great um, creativity in the general population and throughout history. And um, having people who think differently is uh, very important for, need I say, for civilization as a whole. And the neuro diversity movement is advocate of of moving away from the idea that such conditions are somehow aberrant or disordered and need to be cured rather people should be properly supported and embraced to function at the best capacity they can 
That was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That was a really fantastic description. And um, that was beautiful. I was sitting there trying to process all of it as you were saying that. Thank you. That was, that was excellent. Um, It's so hard sometimes for people to, to wrap their minds around the differences in vocabulary and the importance, as you said, of the vocabulary and the importance of not looking at it as um, a disease or a disorder, but as a difference. So I, you just explained that incredibly well. Thank you. Um, your, your areas of expertise are listed as brain-body interactions, joint hypermobility, and liaison psychiatry. Your research areas are neuroscience, psychiatric manifestations of connective tissue disorders, and mechanisms of chronic pain and fatigue. So in short, you're one of the most perfectly placed people to speak on this topic. <laughs> so what, what led you to pursue the path that you have been on? What drew you to this research? Well, that's, that's a really interesting question, Jennifer. So um, when I was at medical school uh, in the UK, I became interested in the kind of philosophy of science and the philosophy of mind. So I knew I wanted to specialize in something to do with psychiatry in the brain. When I was at medical school, um, when I was doing an orthopedics rotation, I was approached by one of the doctors there and told that I was hypermobile. So I, I had this kind of interest in hypermobility. And when I came to pursue my um, academic psychiatry training in Brighton and Sussex Medical School, my then supervisor, Professor Hugo Critchley, when we were talking about the type of work that I would be doing, he was like, I'd like you to do a brain imaging study of hypermobility. Have you heard of it? And I was like, well, actually, interesting that you should say so, because actually, I think I have it. Um, So I, I got into the field through that particular brain imaging study, which was published back in 2012. And what we did is we, it was a relatively new brain imaging center. It's a new medical school, uh, Brighton and Sussex Medical School. We took all of the people who had previously been through the brain scanner as so-called healthy controls, and uh, we assessed them to see if they were hypermobile or not. And we looked at the differences between the hypermobile and the non-hypermobile in terms of the structure of their brains. And we found uh, the biggest difference was that um, the hypermobile people had different uh, structure to the brain in an area called the amygdala, which is responsible for fear and emotion processing. So that that really um, kick-fired my um, research interest in hypermobility brain-body interactions. But at the same time, uh, we, we found some interesting differences in brain structure that um, had previously been observed in autism and ADHD, which got us thinking a little bit more about the relationship um, between hypermobility and neurodevelopmental conditions. That's so interesting. So many people who are hypermobile do have more anxiety. And um, we know that there's some definite differences there, but I think a lot of people are not really aware of the connection and they feel often guilt or shame over, over the anxiety portion because um, there's a lot of, well, I shouldn't feel this way. Or, um, I know when I first, I first came across your study back in, uh, 2017, when I was writing a paper and when I came across your study, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing and such fabulous information for people to have. So I, I would like as many people as possible to be aware of your research. Cause it's so important and validating for people. Um, because oftentimes I think we, we blame ourselves for things that makes it just makes it worse. Right. 
Right. Yeah, I I think that um, people with hypermobility, because of the way their brain and body interacts, may be more likely to experience anxiety, perhaps because they have slightly different structure to their brain, but also because of the sensitivity of their autonomic nervous system, so their involuntary nervous system that's responsible for fight or flight responses. And um, I think when you talk to patients and people with hypermobility, giving them that understanding that this may be why they're more likely to experience anxiety because of how their um, their bodies are um, can be um, a, a very uh, kind of restorative narrative. That makes a lot of sense. So when you first started in your field and when you first started doing this and finding these connections and the, the difference in the brain structure between hypermobile and non-hypermobile and then um, p- people with anxiety and without it and, and, and sort of starting to see these differences, did you find a fair amount of research already out there on the brain-body interactions, especially as it pertains to hypermobility? Um, there was a. There's been a, a solid amount of research since the since the 90s, mainly in Spain, about the link between hypermobility and anxiety. So that 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 was that was very much undisputed. There were hmm. t- tens and tens of studies all saying the same thing that hypermobile people were more likely to experience anxiety. But beyond that, there wasn't a huge amount. We knew that um, hypermobile people more likely to experience pain. Um, So I started thinking about the relationship between hypermobility and fibromyalgia, which led into thinking about the relationship between hypermobility and ME-CFS. There were some, um, there was a literature, especially in children, uh, about hypermobility and difficulties with coordination. So developmental coordination disorder, which is called dyspraxia. And there were a few um, case reports So individual patients or a couple of patients where uh, it was suggested that there was definitely a link between, say, autism and Marfan syndrome or autism and joint laxity, which got myself and Hugo thinking into the relationship between hypermobility and neurodevelopmental conditions more generally. So um, uh, we we kind of went with that as a potential idea. So it's kind of organic the way that you followed one step to the next to the next. I, I have said for years that um, in my personal practice, I see a, a really high percentage um, or a high link between hypermobility and, and neurodivergence. And just casually looking at it, I see probably 80% to 90% of my dancers with EDS or hypermobility spectrum disorders um, who also are neurodivergent in some way. They're diagnosed with ADHD, they're autistic, they are highly gifted um, and also have sensory processing disorder. You know, they have all of these things that go with it. Um, So just in my casual client work, I have seen that and wondered, there's got to be a link to it. Um, So you think that neurodivergence is something that you see as more common in hypermobility than in the general population? Yes. Um, So I think that that's definitely fair to say. So um, we've been doing some work in our, so I work uh, clinically in a, what we call a neurodevelopmental clinic, which is where we see people uh, with um, autistic people, ADHD, Tourette syndrome. Um, And we, we've published a preprint, it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, where we show that there are 
um, you're much more likely to be hypermobile if you have these diagnoses than if you are a control. But whilst we were doing that research, we were sort of pipped to the post a little by um, a, a paper that encompass the whole population of Sweden. So there are some countries in the world that um, have these very important health registries so they can, they can look at their whole population. And in the whole population of Sweden, they discovered that if you had a diagnosis of a hypermobility condition, so either JHS or EDS, you were seven times more likely to have a diagnosis of autism or nearly six times more likely to have a diagnosis of ADHD. So that is that is really very compelling uh, to come from a whole population. Of course, not everyone in that population with hypermobility will have been diagnosed and be in the registry. And the same is true of, um, of the neurodevelopmental conditions. So not all people, all autistic people will have received a diagnosis, same with ADHD. So, those figures times seven and times five or six um, are really probably just the tip of the iceberg. And in our clinical work, um, uh, we find that it's very rare to see a autistic person or a person with ADHD who is not hypermobile. And wow. along, alongside the hypermobility, we often see other related phenomena, so pain, fatigue, autonomic dysfunction, sensory sensitivities, allergies. I think it's all it's all coming together. Mm. Um, but I think we can be quite um, quite convinced that there is a link. But that does not mean to say that all um, hypermobile people have um, neurodevelopmental conditions or all um, people with neurodevelopmental conditions are hypermobile. But there certainly seems to be something very uh, intriguing going on. And I think it's it's important to recognize this because that means that say if you're seeing someone with hypermobility you think ah should I be screening or looking for um, for ADHD or autism or Tourette syndrome and if you see someone with um, autism ADHD or Tourette syndrome you're thinking ah should I be looking to see if they have joint hypermobility because this may explain a lot of the physical problems that they mm. experience so things like I mentioned pain and fatigue but another big um, issue is say gastrointestinal disturbance uh, and a, a lot of um, a lot of patients with neurodevelopmental conditions um, uh, complain of of irritable bowel and irritable bladder and so um, realizing that this may be rec um, recognizing that this may be related to hypermobility can be quite important for them. I think that a large population of our listeners are parents of hypermobile artistic athletes. And I think that a lot of them out there right now are maybe crying quietly or feeling a huge sense of relief that um, you're putting a name and a face to instincts that they have had for a really long time about their dancer and about their child. I have a dancer who um, is extremely hypermobile, um, undiagnosed with any sort of disorder, but, but probably there and who has trouble partnering um, with a partner because the sensory issue, the touch of his hand or the feel of his pulse um, can be really difficult for her. Uh, and, and those dancers feel like they're crazy when they're in the classes and they're so distracted by the, the tag of their leotard or they are having such a hard time focusing. And as we know, females present very differently than males do for um, ADHD. So what you are saying today, I think is really validating a lot of people 
and a lot of their feelings and making them think, oh my gosh, I'm not crazy. So we are, we are so grateful for you for this. Yeah. Um, well, there's um, a phrase, um, you know, um, lots of issues think connective tissue differences. <laughs> so I, I, I think, yeah, it, 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 it really does seem to join the dots in, in many different ways. Mm-hmm. It does. And that's, that's a phrase we, we use a lot. Um, so help me connect the dots one more time. I know you briefly mentioned it, but what do you see as the link between neurodivergence and hypermobility? Are you able to pinpoint something or are you just at the point where you're able to say it's a higher likelihood? Um, unfortunately, I think we're just at the point where we're able to say it's a higher likelihood. I think, you know, we were talking earlier about the relationship between joint hypermobility and anxiety. And that is a story that is quite easy to, to tell and to understand in terms of differences in brain structure, differences in autonomic nervous system functioning. And there is a story about um, how that may be related to connective tissue issues in the periphery that mean that um, blood doesn't return to the heart so well, which means you're more likely to have a high heart rate and um, fight or flight response. So it, it makes the anxiety and hypermobility story makes a lot of sense conceptually. Um, the Anxiety and not anxiety, sorry, the hypermobility and neurodivergent stories slightly harder to to kind of tease apart mechanistically. My gut instinct is that these conditions, these are things that you are essentially born with, um, maybe perhaps inherited together or some process to do with connective tissue development is also affecting brain development. Um, But this is just a hypothesis. And, and in your um, 2012 paper that you had published, you um, actually used, if I remember correctly, you used a Byton score of um, greater than one for the hypermobile group, right? So um, I thought that was fascinating looking at that. You you commented that you were using more inclusive criteria for those purposes. And you also talked a little bit about you know the connection with the severity or the degree to which someone was hypermobile. Are you able to comment on that at all? Yes. I mean, so in some ways it was a very practical decision to do that in that the literature is is quite contentious in terms of at what point do you decide that this degree of hypermobility is is significant. So even even at that point, um, it's still very contentious, but some some authors would suggest four, some would suggest five. And maybe I was naive, but I thought, well, you either there's none or there's some. So um, and by doing it as none or some, uh, we were able to very conveniently divide the group in half, uh, which made a lot of sense um, statistically. Um, but what we did find, which was interesting and relates uh, to this topic, is that the higher the um, Byton score, the smaller an area of the brain in parietal cortex that's responsible for processing where you are in space uh, was. Mm. So that, um, that sort of makes sense in terms of what we're hearing about hypermobility and coordination problems and dyspraxia. Mm-hmm. Um, it, is, um, it, is an interesting, um, it is an interesting point. Is that the only way that we can measure the degree of hypermobility? Probably not. Um, so I've, uh, one of my uh, research projects at the moment is looking at um, in anxious people to see if the number of connective tissue features predict any aspects of autism or related conditions. And our initial findings are that 
it's not so much the the Byton score, but the number of connective tissue features in the Ehlers-Danlos um, syndrome criteria. So things like soft, stretchy skin, arachnodactyly prolapses, um, things like that. The, the cumulative total of those seems to uh, predict number of sensory processing um, differences uh, in autistic traits. That's really interesting, especially given that the Byton score in the group that we're you know, really speaking to in dancers is particularly problematic because it's biased towards the upper extremities yeah. and dancers tend to get more injured in the lower extremities and tend to have more issues in the lower extremities. And I've observed that even in my patients that are not dancers, um, you know, that they often have more issues in the lower extremities. They have a lot of issues with maybe, you know, ankles and hips and things that are not included in the bite and score at all. So. Um, no, no, no. That, that, that is a very important point um, that although it is a useful tool, it misses out several of the really important subluxable joints. Um, and also, but what is interesting as well is that that changes with age. So some people become right, less. Right. Um, well, they're not becoming less hypermobile, but their bite and score may uh, go down. So we, we published some work in January that showed that pain and fatigue symptoms correlated with the bite and score, the historical bite and score rather than the current bite and score. Um, so that it's important when you're talking to patients to determine if they have how hypermobile they've ever been rather than merely how hypermobile they are now. Sure. And, and I, I love the five point questionnaire for that reason. Mm. Although I often find when I ask people about, you know, can you now, or could you ever touch your thumb to your forearm? And they go, what, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. It, it's, it's easier to do that in real time than to remember. But um, yeah, I'm glad you pointed out about other joints. Cause like the shoulder, which we know definitely lots and lots of people have problems with is, mm -hmm. is not included in the bite and score or in the lower limb assessment score. Um, and, and things. So I'm, I'm glad that you talked about um, dyspraxia. And um, we'd like to talk a little bit also about um, proprioception, because especially we find it quite fascinating that dancers and athletes have difficulty with proprioception, um, because so often we tend to think of them as having, you know, we, we, th we would think that they would have good proprioception. And so ones that are hypermobile often really um, struggle with that. And it makes it very difficult for them to avoid going into that hypermobile range and, and things like that. So um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between neurodivergence and proprioception um, and dyspraxia a little bit more? So this is um, a really big feature in that um, the, the kind of the spectrum of neurodivergence includes things like um, dyspraxia, dyslexia, and dyscalculia, which um, in and of themselves are not necessarily diagnostic of anything else, but taken in combination or in a history, they're often an indicator that there may be another neurodevelopmental um, phenomenon going on. So in our in our clinics, uh, we often discover, well, not discover, but it, it seems that um, almost all of the patients um, have had some issues either with dyslexia or dyspraxia or dyscalculia. I think people often forget about dyscalculia and dyspraxia mm. and they think, oh, yes, I was diagnosed with dyslexia at school or that was that was queried. Um, but dyspraxia, there's, there's definitely um, um, a substantial body of work linking hypermobility to dyspraxia. Well, and I see, I see girls mostly um, because I, I work with a lot of the, like the pre-professional dancers and it is surprising um, 
to the teachers that that have the dancers that I work with because I, I do one-on-one work. The teachers will call me and say with my extremely hypermobile dancers, why are they so clumsy? <laughs> Like why, why can they organize themselves to do this incredibly complex dance move? And yet they can't figure out where they are in space without having the mirror and, and trying to have that conversation um, and educate the dance teachers has been, has been really interesting. And, and it's really disheartening for the dancers because they think this is my, this is my chosen career. This is what I'm working towards. Why can I not balance with my eyes closed? You know, and because a lot of them are under, underdiagnosed. Yeah, no, definitely. There, I mean, there's a huge amount of underdiagnosis, but I think there is also some some talk um, about proprioception as a potential treatment target. Um, I mean, this is this is completely um, out there, but um, the potential that, that could be movement therapies or or proprioceptive therapies that could improve things like anxiety um, and other other states um, that by improving proprioception you may improve interoception you may improve you may improve well-being in a more general way that makes sense though that makes a lot of sense i would i would be interested to see that um in general girls seem to be underdiagnosed in the neurodivergent population and since ballet is often comprised um, mostly of girls especially in the early years as i was saying we could see dancers spending most of their career either unaway, unaware that they may be neurodivergent or masking to be able to interact with others on a daily basis. So if someone suspects, perhaps after listening to this podcast, that they are neurodivergent, what first steps might you suggest they could take? Well, I think um, it's important to, to talk to your, uh, in the UK, we call it a general practitioner, so your mm-hmm. family medicine doctor. Um, to see what the options are in terms of pursuing a further assessment. It can be really helpful to, to read things online and even potentially to do some screening questionnaires uh, to see if the stories and the experiences of other um, neurodivergent people resonate. Um, a, um, a good resource that we recommend to our patients is something called attitude.com. They have a lot of uh, interesting articles about neurodivergence. So I think um, doing a little bit of research, um, seeing if, if, if these stories resonate, particularly finding stories of other neurodivergent women, because as we know, the female presentation uh, or the presentation in women can be different. As you say, um, women are much more likely to be able to mask their symptoms and go under the radar. But what we notice uh, a lot is that masking has a toll in terms of kind of feeling socially exhausted um, and needing quite a bit of time to rest and recover after social interactions. That's actually really interesting because fatigue is such a common um, complaint. So that's an interesting potential um, contributor to that that I hadn't, yeah, interesting. Well, no, 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 it's something that I'm definitely thinking about in terms of um, the relationship between pain and fatigue um, Mm -hmm. conditions like fibromyalgia and ME-CFS and possible relationships with neurodivergence. It's just ideas at the moment, but there are studies to be done uh, within that field. We love the studies that your brain thinks of, <laughs> the directions you go and the benefits that it gives to all of us. So um, think away and, and, and grow with that and grow with it. And I think um, on the topic of, of the dancers and, and the, the girls being able to mask it better, I think a lot of dancers 
may end up saying, oh, I'm just, you know, um, an introvert and not realizing there may be a, a deeper issue running through it, especially if they have other symptoms going on as well. If they have possible poor proprioception or um, ADHD, um, it is definitely something worth getting getting checked out because it would be helpful to, to know and to perhaps get, get some help with it. Absolutely. And I think uh, that's also something that we're coming to appreciate more and more is how often comorbid or how often these things happen together. So just because you have an autism diagnosis or are autistic doesn't mean to say that you can't have ADHD and vice versa. That, that makes sense. And in terms of as neurodiversity, and when we start discussing this more in the general population, do you have any advice that you would give to um, teachers or parents that um, could help them be more effective in their roles with a neurodivergent dancer? Um, I think um, kind of um, speaking to what I was saying a little bit earlier is that uh, it's really important to think of, of these conditions as both a source of strength and also possibly a source of need. So identifying things that are going well and the strengths of the individual uh, and respecting those and working with those and not thinking, oh, I have I have this disorder. I won't be able to do what I want to do in my life. Um, but also being appreciative that there are some things that may be, um, may be needed. So adapting or uh, adjusting to routines, um, particularly uh, what Jennifer was saying as well about sensory preferences and being aware of the potential for sensory overload or sensory overwhelm and making sure, I mean, it's a, it's a good um, attitude uh, for everything, but that things are paced appropriately and that all of the the appropriate um, adjustments can be made uh, given um, the underlying issues. But I think really um, uh, that it shouldn't be thought of as something that should hold you back or, or, or be a hindrance. Uh, it's something to be embraced. Um, in the UK, in fact, there is an organization called Embracing Complexity um, that represents different um, uh, charities uh, that deal with um, neurodivergence. And I, I like that as a phrase, uh, that complexity is something that we're, you know, scared of, but it is something, um, something to embrace and um, that, you know, re really important artists and thinkers um, are likely to have neurodivergent. And that, that's one of my new, new projects is um, exploring the relationship between creativity, hypermobility and neurodivergence. That, that's so interesting because um, there's a lot of conversation in in the dance world um, right now as as we've used the time for the pan from the pandemic and from lockdown to um, sort of look at what is going on in the dance world that we need to address and what things could we change. This would be a great time to do it. And one of it is, should you suffer for your art? And there's that whole thought that um, you have to suffer. You have to be willing to cut off your ear, right, in order mm -hmm. to create great art. And I think it's incredibly validating for um, people to hear, like you said at the beginning, um, uh, neurodivergence has been a source of creativity throughout civilization, right? A source of huge creativity. And we don't want people to think about neurodivergence as um, an illness or as a problem or something that needs to be fixed. We're talking about um, ways to get you help in order to, to be the best you that you already are, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and we want people to think about what makes them different, uh, makes them incredibly special and also means they may have a lot to offer the population and let's help them 
offer the great creativity without feeling like they have to go through the suffering that, that goes with it, help them sort of alleviate some of that. So no, I- Exactly. I, I really appreciate that you have been speaking about it from such a positive tone and wanting to encourage um, people who might think that this is something that they've got going on. Yes. <laughs> And I have a question to, on that um, exact same uh, thread, I believe, that um, so many of the people that I work with, they really struggle because they're significant people in their life, whether it's their spouse, their family, their friends, they don't understand why it is that this person has so much pain, why they have so much fatigue, why they have difficulty concentrating and focusing. And so um, I think that anything that you can offer in terms of, you know, we all know how our own body feels and how our own body works. And so when we're talking to other people that are hypermobile and struggle with some of the same things, we're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, we, we get it. But when we're talking to people that have never dealt with those things, um, who are very linear thinkers, who are very, you know, like they're not distractible or that, you know, they, they, they don't have pain or whatever. Um, do you have any suggestions for how to um, get them to be more understanding or be more open-minded um, with the person who is um, experiencing these conditions? I suppose really um, if, they, if they can and they have the time to take time to read a little bit more about them, um, about these conditions and about how they may affect their, their, their friends and family. Um, I think with with everything, um, knowledge and education is 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 power really in in terms of moving forward. Um, and uh, if they if they can avail themselves of as much good information as is possible, that would be fantastic. Yes, you have um, you have given us so much to think about and to um, encourage so many of our listeners, and we are really grateful. Was there anything that we did not discuss today that you wanted to make sure that we got to? No, I, I think we've covered. Um, I think we've covered everything. Really. I, I think there is there is so much that we could talk about and different uh, avenues and rabbit holes to go down. Uh, but I think we've covered the uh, the the important points. Well, we appreciate it. We will have to have you back so that we can cover um, other rabbit holes. So we can <laughs> go down other rabbit holes with you um, because this has been fantastic. Uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? So um, if you want, you can um, follow me on Twitter. I'm at Bendy Brain. Um, otherwise, if you type my name and hypermobility into Google, uh, so Jessica Eccles Hypermobility, it will take you to my um, institution's webpage, which is Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK, which has all of my contact details and links to articles. And also, um, I do have a few uh, videos on YouTube about similar topics. And I will say I've watched those videos and they are excellent. They're great. So anybody who's interested in going down these rabbit holes by yourself with her <laughs> online, I highly encourage you to do that. Um, thank you so much. You have been listening to Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. Today, we've been speaking with Dr. Jessica Eccles, Senior Clinical Academic Psychiatrist at Brighton and Sussex Medical School in the UK and Specialist in Brain Body Neuroscience. Dr. Eccles, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Bendy Bodies podcast and for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. 
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD, where we explore the intersection of health and hypermobility for dancers and other artistic athletes. Please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Remember to subscribe so you won't miss future episodes. Be sure to subscribe to the Bendy Bodies YouTube channel as well. Thank you for helping us spread the word about hypermobility and associated conditions. Visit our website, www.bendybodies.org, for more information. For a limited time, you could win an autographed copy of the popular textbook, Disjointed, Navigating the Diagnosis and Management of Hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and Hypermobility Spectrum Disorders, just by sharing what you love about the Bendy Bodies podcast. On Instagram, tag us at bendy underscore bodies and on Facebook at Bendy Bodies Podcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are solely of the co-hosts and their guests. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of any organization. The thoughts and opinions do not constitute medical advice and should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever. This podcast is intended for general education only and does not constitute medical advice. Your own individual situation may vary. Do not make any changes without first seeking your own individual care from your physician. We'll catch you next time on the Bendy Bodies Podcast. This episode of the Bendy Bodies Podcast was brought to you by Bauerfine Premium Braces and Supports, designed to provide joint stability and pain relief.